It's time for another episode of Lectionary Lab Live, recorded by Two Bubbas and a Bible, live from wherever we are, usually from Venice, Florida, and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my Bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, Bubba. Hey, Bubba. Hey, man. Good to hear from you today. We're going to talk a little text, as we all want to do. Think about preaching. For the upcoming 11th Sunday after Pentecost, these are the texts for August the 16th, 2020. We... uh Continue the summer's sojourn through uh, the book of Genesis. We're uh, finally shifting uh, patriarchs, I guess you could say, today, the story of Joseph. And uh, move ahead for the psalm. Uh, I'm sure you've got some uh, Romans for us and a little bit of uh, gospel. And uh, Jesus back in the parable business and uh, some interesting Interesting work to be done today. So well, t- tell me what you got going on your mind. Well, at this time of year, particularly if like we're doing, you do the semi-continuous reading. Uh, the only two that are consciously paired under uh, on by the committee are the Hebrew scripture lesson, the Genesis lesson, and the Psalm to go with it. And then the Romans, we're reading through Romans and the gospel, mm-hmm. we're reading through Matthew. So you basically, if you want to do series preaching in the summer, you've got three series to pick from, That's basically, right. when you do the semi-continuous. But, master theme weaver that I am, theme theme weaver. <laughs> man who will find one if he can. Uh, You know, and I I just think it's just the consistency of Scripture and some basic things that are always there. I just want to point out that though these lessons were not picked for themes, one that shows up throughout, that is, in Genesis, Romans, and the Gospel, is God's care for God's covenant with Israel. Underneath what's going on in each one of these texts is that background business of God's chosen people and God's relationship with them and God's promises made and promises kept as God works through it. So in, in, in God's care for God's covenant with Israel in Genesis, Joseph's speech is about God being behind the scenes and acting not just to preserve Joseph, but acting through Joseph to preserve Israel and the promise he made. Absolutely. In Romans, then, you have this this business of God's gifts and call being irrevocable. As he struggles with what what does the Jesus, the Messiah, and being extended to the Gentiles, how does that deal and relate to the Israelites who haven't accepted Jesus as as the Messiah, again, God's covenant with God's chosen people. Mm. And then you get into the gospel and the two sections, and I want to talk about the part in parentheses and how you play with this, but both sections there have to do with how does one maintain a connection 
with that covenant? What is the connection? Is it by what you do or what you believe or your faith and who, you know, and all that genetics Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. being faithful. But underneath all of that is not only our covenant and relationship to God from our side, but it's God's covenant with us and what is it based in so i think one theme that runs throughout all of this is that covenant of god's faithfulness to god's promise as you alluded maybe one of the reasons we have uh, become theme weavers uh, (laughs) is that you know maybe it takes a while but that's kind of the the whole theme of the kind of the whole Bible when you, yes, <laughs> you know? exactly. And, and and another way we say it sometimes is there is gospel from Genesis through Revelation. That's right. It it is everywhere in God's work, and it is not only when we are reading the Gospels, uh, the canonical Gospels. Uh, there is gospel. There is God's good news, and it is the story of God's care. And God is tending. God promises, and God keeps promises, and that's just what this work uh, is about. So, yeah, depending on our theological or perhaps social or position, liberal to conservative, you know, all kinds of things we can put with that, we might have a tendency to run off the road in one way or the other. One people have a tendency to run off the road into a form of legalism that says God requires this, and if you don't do this, then God can't love you, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Another group of people tend over toward the uh, kind of antinomianism of God loves you no matter what you do, which is why the whole law and gospel and keeping in balance, and it runs from beginning to end. So you can't differentiate Old Testament God and law versus New Testament. We threw that out with Marcion, you know, <laughs> 1,500 years ago. Look it up if you don't know. But, you know, we said, no, that doesn't work. There's one, it's one God in three persons and a consistent message of grace and love. So Genesis 45, uh, 1 through 15, we have Joseph's revelation of his identity to his brothers. Now, if you're preaching this series, the first part of the sermon might be a quick recap of what happened in Egypt, because last Sunday we have him sold into slavery, and this week we've got him, everything's happened. Lord of Egypt, yeah. Lord of Egypt. So you might need to do a quick (laughs) recap. Most people know bits and pieces of the story, but, you know, Potiphar's wife, you know, some of these various things where he rose to this position of power. Mm-hmm. And then immediately before this, we have this whole thing where there's a famine in, 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 in uh, the Canaan, and uh, uh, their father sends them to get grain in, in Egypt. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, probably because mm-hmm. they still look like a bunch of, you know, shepherds from the hill country he's got country a shaved boys. head and he's got all the fancy clothes on and all that of the prime minister of egypt and all of that sort of stuff so basically joseph messes with him for a while mm-hmm. before he finally comes clean and says and of course they're dismayed the key element today is this big reveal it reminds me of a show i used to watch a little bit uh, the last year or two with my son and daughter-in-law when we'd go over there for dinner because we never watched it at home, but it was fun to watch it with a group. The Mask Singer, right. where everybody's trying to figure out who, and then suddenly, I can't believe it! Yep. But 
combined with the I can't believe it is, oh, my God, he's in power. We tried to kill him. What's he going to do? No wonder they're dismayed. There's all kind of words that could have come out of their mouths. Yeah, I would say dismayed is an understatement. I would argue (laughs) that that was a big oh, crap moment. Well, you said it. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't mind saying, oh, my God. Then 4 through 13, Joseph makes this speech, the summation of which actually comes at 50-20 sometime in another episode that we're not, you know, in which he those lines that I love, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good, is the summation of this 4 through 13, and which is what I'm talking about. But if you look deeply in it, whoever wrote this is is saying, look, God took an active hand in what Joseph was doing, even back to the brothers selling him into Egypt, Mm -hmm. because God foreknew this this was going to happen, and he wanted to provide for Israel. Now, for me, there's a couple of interpretations, and I'm going to let you turn loose. One is the this puts sovereignty and predestination in a much more positive and grace-filled light than many of us modern people who like personal independence and choice issues sometimes see it. The God that is reflected in this text is a God who is full of mercy and grace and is mercifully finding ways to work within history to provide grace and favor and mercy for God's people. It's not that God controls everything that happens and we're just puppets. That's why we hear sovereignty or predestination, but that underneath what's going on, we can feel confident that God's grace and mercy are not just an emotive feeling the creator of the universe has before us, but is an active involvement in our lives. There's There's one piece. And the second one I think is, you could preach a sermon on forgiveness and rec- reconciliation. And again, it's, it, this is the important piece I see here. It's only when we rise above our personal injury and see forgiveness and reconciliation as a part of the community and for the greater good. And it goes, it's not about how you feel about whether you can forgive that person personally. It's what works for the greater good of the community. And that's what Joseph does. He forgives them for the sake of his father, for the larger community, for the need. And that's what the way forgiveness and reconciliation work for us. And if we sit around and someone's injured me and I just can't feel like I can forgive them, it's not about your feelings. Mm -hmm. It's about what you're called to do and your feelings will follow your actions. And your actions are determined by your moral imperatives, which invite you to do what's best for the the most people you can aid. The greater good. The greater good. Those are two avenues I would, it might work them together in a sermon on that. Well, yeah, there's there's plenty of Trump in a round room in this one. And I think the biggest challenge is what you identified right off the bat the two Joseph stories actually seem a little disconnected when you move right from one to the other. So I do believe it's essential to help people remember and step in to some of the intervening stuff that makes then this uh, part of the tale uh, all the more powerful. And we realize how much Joseph has been through. I'm just going to stick consistently with what I've tried to do uh, 
throughout the summer and throughout this series, what do we learn about God and what do we learn about God's relationship uh, with God's people? Everything else we've said is so true. God is taking care of the covenant here, the work is moving on, so on and so forth. Well, I want to call this, and I'm still searching a little bit for, for words here, but this is a story for me when I think about the character of God. This is a God who is in the details, not so much in a micromanager kind of role. Exactly. Uh, well, I think I'll send Joseph out to the field to check on his brothers today so that he can get thrown in a pit. And I know that the Midianites are coming by and they'll sell him as a slave. And No, no, no. But this is a God who is in the details even when they stink. I mean, Joseph did not have a pleasant life over 20 years or so. And it has all ended up pretty well, and he's got a pretty good life now. But it was tough for a while as a slave in prison, uh, you know, getting accused by Mrs. Potiphar and just all the way. And there's a tremendous theme of reversal here, which is going to be one of the Bible's um, stories that we go to over and over again. A great reversal. Joseph experiences yeah. a great reversal. So find a way to talk about that without taking too much time. It, it, You've right. got to trip the light fantastic here okay, yeah. with all of that. But this is what we learn about God. This is the God of Romans 8.28 at work yeah. in all things for yeah. the good, okay? That's what I see. What do I learn about Joseph and how he stands in sort of for us? Because each week I've been saying, you know, these, these stories are so vital. Uh, these characters, they're not super spiritual people. They didn't have some secret ingredient X or some spiritual chromosome that we don't have that God selected them. They're just people, and their lives are, are a lot like ours. Their struggles are a lot like ours. This is Joseph, who basically hung in there, all right? He, he's a survivor. He's got some of his dad in him. He, you know, he hangs in there, and he perseveres. And interestingly, when we met him, he was set up as a seer, a dreamer, okay, a person who sees. And what we have in today's story particularly is the way Joseph now sees the hand of God. He sees how the, uh, the entire situation has come together. Three different times in this passage, he says, it was God who sent me. And so Joseph is now the seer. He can see it all in perspective, but we don't see it in perspective while we're going through it. And so this is the reason that perseverance is often uh, one of the virtues or the values that is described in Scripture and why it comes out in so many character stories. Yes, Joseph sees it now. He helps his brothers to see it. He's concerned for his father, and he helps us all to see it. I just want to note in terms of reconciliation, if you're working that, that verse 15, uh, 14 and 15 is about as uh, beautiful a picture of reconciliation yeah. as you get. Not only does he fall upon his full brother, Benjamin's neck, and they weep uh, with each other, then he kissed all his brothers, 
all right? The half-brothers, the, the sons of the concubines, you know, the, uh, the whole thing, and wept upon them. And then, I love this line, and after that, his brothers talked with him. Yep. And they got all of that out of the way. Now they could sit down and talk. Um, it's, uh, it's good stuff. And so, yeah, there's plenty to work with. And it it all, it had to come from Joseph being willing to put aside his, not only his desire for revenge, but his ability to invoke it and be able to say, what is the best thing for everyone? And and call that to, to the forefront. And this is to me is part of persevering. It's not just hanging on by your fingernails. It's making very active decisions along the way. If you're going to persevere through life's circumstances, there's an awful lot you can't control. In fact, when you get down to it, there's very little we control. What we control are our decisions. What we control are our reactions. And you're naming a very important one here. He has to get over himself. He has to get over his anger. He has to get over his resentment. He has to get over the fact that he could snap his fingers and it'd be off with their heads, no questions asked. Right. That's part of the perseverance I'm talking about. That That is how you endure. That is how you persevere. And that is how then you see the hand of God only through the experience, only really looking back. I mean, I think you can make a case for seeing God appear at various places and at various times as we have in these stories. But I'm talking about a real... We're reaching sort of the end of this long arc, and so I'm kind of looking for an overarching arc right. to begin to pull the story together before we right. finish with Joseph, and then we're going to move to Moses, and that's yeah. a whole nother arc. Whole nother, no, whole nother Egyptian odyssey. Yep. So the psalm is chosen. It's only a three-verse psalm, and it's chosen because of that, that very first line, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. So it's a commentary and it has beautiful images drawn from nature in life in Israel that to describe that. So that just ties directly to the last verse of Genesis about them weeping over one another and crying and all of that. So we move to Romans 11, 1 through 2a, and then skip all the way to 29 through 32. And here's what goes on. The verses 1 and 2a is kind of this introduction to chapter 11 and what he's going to deal with here. But notice it starts with a then. I ask, then, has God rejected his people? So that's obviously responding to something. He's responding, Paul is, to stuff he said in chapter 10, which was a discussion of Israel's disobedience. So the question he's asking is, does disobedience lead to God's disowning Israel? And by no means is about as strong a no as he can give. One of my professors at the Baptist seminary said, Mm -hmm. the best American English translation of that is hell no. Yeah. No, he does not. It's, It's just pound the table no. God does not reject God's people. And this, this, that's verse 1 and 2, and he talks about this. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. That's 2a. God doesn't reject. 
Then there's this section where he talks back and forth about the importance of the disobedience and how the disobedience works. This is all Paul's theology, and you can look through that. And then he moves back to 29. That's part of our text here. And he comes back to it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Oh, I love it. That's a good Irrevocable. Cannot, cannot take it back. The irreversibility of God's gift and call to God's people. So once again, we are reminded that our tendency to want to say, you've got to do certain things for God to love you, puts the priority on us and consistent through scripture from the calling of Abraham all the way through is the priority is with God and God's call and God's gift and God's grace. Another little bit of that graceful sovereignty of God that we live into. And he reminds the people who aren't Israelites, you know, when they're accusing the Jews of disobedience, he says, now, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, let's not try to do God's work for God. God has a big picture involved, and you need to worry about you and let God worry about those other folks. God's promise is not irrevocable. Is it irrevocable? God's promise is irrevocable, and God's God's promise is irrevocable, and God's nature is mercy. Mercy shown to you. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. The key is God's mercy and love. Mercy now. And helpful to note, that's a prison we've all built pretty much on our own. The disobedience is ours. And yeah, we're all subject to the same same thing here. But as God looks at it, as we're imprisoned in disobedience, that is an opportunity for God to show mercy, which is God's nature. In 30, 31, and 32, Mercy or merciful occurs four times in those three short verses. That's the priority of this text. Mercy, gift, call, irrevocable. It's about God. How do we respond? So um, to the gospel, here's my suggestion on this. You know, there's a part of it that in parentheses and a part of it's not. And the parenthetical part is, uh, you know, they sort of put that. You can read this if you want to. <laughs> I or do you do you want to? You want you want to? to? You want to? That's a that's a you know a good southern combination of three words. Do you want to? Four words. Do you want to? You want to? Um, you so, have to get your fingers out there, bubble. Yeah, I had to get them out there and figure out how many words there are. <laughs> Listen, I you know when I'm writing down the date. And I want to do it with a number. I have to get my hand out. I only got 10 fingers. So I have to go November, December back around (laughs) on the other hand. Um, So 10 through 20 is, is about the defile. What goes in and is Mm -hmm. what is not what defiles, what comes out. And you, you, I think you could work with that or you can work with this second story about the Canaanite woman. They work together, but it's a lot of work to get that done, particularly in a 10 to 15 minute kind of work. And it's not worth, I would say it's not worth the effort. Mm. <laughs> I, I, 
And I'm kind of with you. If you're studying through, you know, in Bible study or some such, and you got more time to talk about it and how they interrelate and, and really set the, the uh, foundation with the parable, I, I think it's great. But in a sermon, I am highly in favor of what you're saying. I'm going with 21 to 28. Yeah, go 21, 28. Deal with the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, and who you calling a dog. Uh, you know, that's a, the more prior story. I, for one thing, that whole business of eating and not eating for most anybody, uh, most of us doesn't matter. You know, it's not a live issue, so you got to interpret the issue too much, you know, to be able to do that. But the question of, I would have said at one point, I think, in my naive progressive Christianity that we were beyond this question of, of race and how people are involved in ethnicity, but I think the last few years, in particular 2020, we need to really attack here because one of the things that's happening is people is, are beginning, again, to decide other people's worth by genetics, by ethnicity, by who, who by, by race, color, uh, creed in, in, in odd ways, and this addresses it directly, and it's enough of a startling story where Jesus appears to buy into some of that. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Now, you know, I used to used to have this thing about, you know, that some people say that Jesus knew was not being judgmental when he said it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And he was just doing a visual parable for the disciples. And, and then, you know, he wasn't really this. And, and I'm like, yeah, but was the woman in on it? Because she's getting mm-hmm. insulted either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he not find it insulting to say this? Was this something that was acceptable to be said in that time? And it wasn't really an insult like we think. I think only any answer that tries to get Jesus off the hook misses the point of the story at some level. It is meant to shock us because it's meant to shock us into saying, wait a minute, Jesus is supposed to, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. What does he mean? It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. I'm, this woman's begging for help and I'm, he's saying he's not going to help. I got in trouble with the the heresy hunters in the ELCA over a sermon I published on this in which I said that Jesus learned something about the, the gospel going to the Gentiles from this woman. And they said that the good Lord almighty didn't need to learn anything. That might be true. I might've been wrong, but I do think he did. I think his surprise and, great graceful moment here is that expanded jesus notion of what it meant for him to be the messiah he believed he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of israel and she expanded his vision of what the house of israel was because he said great is your faith well who was in the house of israel who is a part of the covenant back to that question and i think it has to do with who is faithful who has that moment of trust and belief in Jesus as the Messiah mm-hmm. is a part of the household of Israel. I like it. And I want y'all to hear what I'm about to say. I'm, I, I think this is a fine and brilliant exposition by my colleague and I've heard him do it before. Uh, it is. 
But I am going to play a little devil's advocate, which please do, because that was suppositional all the way. From, and, and see, and I know that, and that's why I'm kind of pointing that out. This is Delmer saying, "Look, here's, here's how I see it." Um, and I, I'm not sure I've ever quite seen this story this way, but I'll be honest, this is one of those that's always been a head scratcher for me. And, and I'm going, ah, am I really going to preach this or what? It is possible, or let's let me say, there's another possibility here. Yeah, that Jesus is playing a little bit with the crowd, with the disciples. Uh, it involves him playing with the woman, which we might see as an act of cruelty. However, we've got lots of stories where Jesus kind of peers into the hearts of people and sees what's there. And so as, as Jesus leaves the first part of the story, that the parenthetical part, and he's heading for Tyre and Sidon, here comes the Canaanite woman, here comes the outsider, here comes the immigrant, whatever you want to say. Have mercy, Lord, son of David, a plea which has been answered again and again by Jesus. And his first answer is no answer at all. He didn't answer her at all. He appeared to ignore her. It is the disciples who say, Lord, there's this woman over here. Are you, you know, she's shouting at us. Aren't you, can't you at least send her away? And so then the reply, to whom? To the disciples, to the woman, to the listeners. I was sent only to the uh, lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is Jesus offering a personal belief? Or is Jesus parroting what might well be the attitude of the crowd, of the others, of his disciples. She came and knelt before him. Now it's personal. Lord, help me. And again, he answered. This is his third reply, really, counting the silence. Well, you know, it's not fair to take the children's food, throw it to the dogs. Again, is he voicing people in the crowd going, well, I didn't expect that from him, but you know, he's right. Yeah, that's the way I feel. What about you, Harold? Yeah, I don't know, Maud. And then the woman, the third time, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then comes the revelation. Woman, you've got great faith. It'll be done as you wish. And the healing is instantaneous. So think it through, preacher. That's, well, I think, what I'm arguing for here. Yeah, well, I got, I got, uh, I, I, yeah, we're going to counterbalance. <laughs> this is why we love doing this. That's right. The only thing I will say is, John, where is that idea that Jesus is just messing in the text itself? I'm all just saying, you got to deal with what he said in the text. And I'm saying, I am dealing with the text, but like we all do, I bring <laughs> my best attempt here to imagine what's going on, to understand what's understand. going on. And I'm reading a text by saying, well, is it possible? It doesn't say he spoke these words to the woman. Uh, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, he said to her. So he said was, to her where? says right here, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered. So he must have answered her. Well, he does. Okay. Yeah. I've just, we're, we're done. We're going here. And so. So but my, 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 my underlying, <laughs> my underlying piece <laughs> it's here. It's trying to hold me to a level of accountability that I don't 
think really exists there. No, all I'm I, all I, about the text. I know you are. What, I, what I've tried to say is <laughs> do not let Jesus off the hook too quickly and turn it into he was doing a nice thing. And we, you got to take the shock. And that's all I'm saying. It is shocking. And, that's and, it. I, and it, even in my, if you want to call it a dressed up version, go ahead. I've been accused yeah. of that before. Yeah. He is still willing to shock his disciples and use a woman to make a yeah, point. I know. So either way, this is Joseph, uh, excuse me, Jesus is being a little Josephy here. We saw, yeah. we saw yeah. Joseph last week being a little bit of a smart aleck with his brother. Yeah. Uh, either way, Jesus, yeah. is, this is not totally consonant with the way we might want to design Jesus in our particular yeah. box. Yeah. So yeah. we kind of get to the same thing either way. Either way. And, and you know, I've just messing with you about the text. But the other thing I would say, you know, I would say with this is, and honestly, we don't even know if, you know, this is my real liberal coming out here. We don't know if Jesus said it. It might have been Matthew made the whole thing up. <laughs> you can really let him off the hook with that if you want uh, Yeah, to. <laughs> I'm probably not going that far. But. I wouldn't go there either. I so rarely get an opportunity to insert a, uh, it's not a wedge. What am I trying to say? You and I rarely disagree. Disagree. I know. Here. And I'm not disagreeing. I just yeah. thought it was a great chance to say, well, it could be this. You it know? could be. What's well, I would, I would say that next week, next time around, I might be come up with another idea to get well, him all out of here. Yeah. Well, what's your joke about being Lutheran? Yeah. Uh, on, on the one, on the other hand, I might be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. On the other hand, what do I know? I what could be I wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's the way we roll. All, all good Lutheran sermons end with that. I've enjoyed it, Bubba. Thank you. Thanks for everybody for hanging in here with us. We'll be back next week. We'll talk a little more text, and um, who knows what might happen. Not much left for us to say today, Bubba, other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary Lab Live is a Two Bubbas and a Bible production. Our opening theme is The Jam by Slink and Mr. Stabilina. We go out today with a song making its second appearance here on the Lectionary Lab, Mercy Now, written by Mary Gaucher, performed today by George Allen O'Dowd, better known as Boy George. Falling rock slowly on the ground His work is almost over It won't be long He won't be around I love my father He could use some mercy